You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on Monocle 24 on the 11th of September 2018. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. The Governor has agreed, despite various personal pressures um, to, to, to conclude his term in June, that he will continue until the end of January 2020 in order to help support continuity in our economy during this period. UK Chancellor Philip Hammond announces that something will stay the same after Brexit, the Governor of the Bank of England. My guests Robin Lustig and Ivor Geber will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Hungary's Prime Minister versus the EU's Parliament, a possible end in sight to the world's daftest diplomatic dispute, and would you vote for someone who ate salmon and cream cheese off a cinnamon bagel? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Ivor Gaber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex, and Robin Lustig, the journalist and broadcaster, former presenter of The World Tonight on Radio 4. Welcome both. And we start with Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who has today been putting his case to the European Parliament, ahead of a vote by MEPs on whether Hungary's indifference to EU edicts has been indulged long enough. MEPs will decide tomorrow whether to trigger Article 7 of the Lisbon Treaty, which permits them to impose sanctions upon recalcitrant members, perhaps up to and including suspending voting rights on EU decisions. The EU's list of complaints with Hungary's recent behaviour is long, but high on it is Hungary's refusal to abide by refugee quotas. Um, Robin, first of all, it strikes me at least that Orban can't really lose here, can he? Because on the one hand, if the MEPs bottle it, he gets to go back to Budapest and says, I stared them down and they bottled it. Uh, If, on the other hand, they do clobber him and Hungary. He just gets to go back to Hungary and say those opaque ivory tower bureaucrats who have no regard for the will of the common man and so forth. It's, it's, it's Christmas come early, isn't it? The EU being what it is, yes, you're right. <laughs> However, would that it were not so. I mean, I'm a bit of a hardliner on these things. My view is that when countries join the EU, they sign up to acceptance of a set of rules. They're known as the Copenhagen Criteria. And uh, basically they say you must be a democracy, you must have a functioning market economy, and you must abide by basic human rights principles. Now, if you join the club and you benefit from all of the advantages that that gives you in terms of trade and all the rest of it, then you abide by those rules. If you don't, then you either get sanctioned, which is like a sort of warning, or you get turfed out. Unfortunately, that's not how the EU behaves. So you're right, Mr. Orban, in a sense, can't lose. I mean, I, I've, there have been some suggestions uh, to this effect. Luxembourg's foreign minister, uh, whose name extraordinarily momentarily escapes me a couple of years ago, did say uh, that Hungary, uh, the time had come to actually uh, direct Hungary towards the door. But as I understand it, there's not actually a mechanism for doing that, is there? Not to the door, but there are sanctions, and if you deprive a country of its voting rights, it very soon has a native population that say, oi, what's going on here? But can I just um, pick up Robin's rather 
rose-tinted view of what an international body should do, he sort of neglects one important word, which is politics. Now, I'm sure the British government, for example, is as an enthusiastic supporter for human rights and democracy as anybody else. But they're rumoured to be kind of not instructing their MEPs or the Conservative MEPs not to vote against Hungary because Hungary's been, quote, very helpful in the Brexit negotiations. That's the hard facts of international negotiation it doesn't matter really about the issue it's who wins who loses it's why the eu has such a terrible reputation among so many people it doesn't do what it says on the tin um i think hungary has contravened the rules which it accepted when it joined i think poland probably has as so well some eu countries well, Austria got much closer to being seriously sanctioned when uh, they included the Freedom Party in a coalition government briefly. Well, although, although, perhaps surprisingly, the most recent report I read suggested that Austria was going to instruct its MEPs to vote against Hungary. Yeah, well, that's how times change, don't they? I mean, Ivor is right, of course, politics are politics and people make their decisions in line with what they perceive to be their national interests. But MEPs, in a sense, are in a position where they can take a different role. Is that because nobody knows who any of them are? No, it's because in theory they are there to represent the interests of the broader polity. I mean, this is all very roasting. Deliver is entirely right, and it is very idealistic. But I would like to think that there is still a place in international politics for doing the right thing. But you're right to pinpoint MEPs, but there's another issue that um, governments, all virtually all European governments, don't like the idea of MEPs who they regard as the third and the most inferior, um, not, it's not called a column, but pillar of the EU interfering, taking important decisions. They talk about the democratic deficit, but mm. they're rather content with it. So I just don't think they like MEPs being bolshy. No, well, you're on, right, they don't. I wish MEPs were more bolshy, though. On the subject of the EU, perhaps, or certain people being not perhaps entirely displeased with proceedings, either, is it possible that just on the quiet, some European countries aren't entirely unhappy, whatever their official protestations at Victor Orban uh, has made the noise about refugees and migrants as that he has? Because what the EU has not yet got to grips with, or, and that may be because there is no way to get to grips with this, is that, uh, rightly or wrongly, quite a lot of their populations don't like uh, immigration. They, they don't, they're not happy about accommodating refugees. And if Orban's willing to take the stand, it, 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 it lets everybody else off the hook, doesn't it? Up to a point, but the big problem is the Orbans of this world have given a great deal of momentum to populism across Europe. Um, obviously, similarly in Poland, now we see in Sweden, not to mention Italy. One wonders if the populist movement in, in Europe would have gathered such steam if it didn't have sovereign governments backing it, in a sense. So, yeah, I can see the argument about they like somebody else to take the flack about refugees, but actually I think the big political movements we're seeing in Europe, partly symbolised by Orban, personally I find worrying, and anything that can be done to slow it down would some, be something that I would welcome. I mean, what do you think, Robin? Do you think Viktor Orban you know, is an inflamer and an encourager of those populist movements, or is the fact... It strikes me that it would have been very hard uh, for those populist movements to make uh, the inroads they have without 
uh, the the migrant and refugee crisis. I'm not sitting here suggesting I've got any better ideas for how it could have been handled, mind you. You're right, but the world is as the world is. I mean, the, the migrants came to Europe and uh, some of them ended up in Hungary, although not as many as in many other countries. Very few Look, of them there, 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 is, there is a way of dealing with populism, and that is to confront it rather than to roll over and appease it. And what worries me about the Orban phenomenon is that too many European leaders are doing exactly what you suggest they are doing, which is using him as cover. Um, it would be a better world, in my view, if they confronted him, said his arguments were wrong, and that the kind of ideology that he espouses comes at a cost. And the cost is potential sanctions stroke expulsion from the EU, which would be very much to the detriment of the people of Hungary, far more to the detriment than accepting the relatively few number of immigrants who have arrived in the country. Well, let's move along to a, a somewhat related subject, and we will do that by recalling the hours and days following June 23rd, 2016, as the United Kingdom absorbed the news that it had voted itself out of the European Union. While those who had contrived or enabled the result fled the scene with great and undignified haste, one of the few public figures who projected any idea that they had the vaguest idea what they were doing was the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney. Many wistful remainers of the period wondered if there was some mechanism by which he could just be put in charge of pretty much everything. Carney was due to leave his post in June next year, but has today agreed a seven-month extension. Um, either basically is this good news or a suggestion that the government is in a state of desperate panic and has absolutely no idea at all what's going to happen in March? It, it could be both, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that, that is, of course, option C, all of the above. <laughs> I am always cheered and this is betraying my personal politics when I hear Nigel Farage denounce something that's happened I think it can't be all bad <laughs> Nigel Farage um, is called was led if you like unofficially the leave campaign and he and fellow Brexiteers as we call them in Parliament were quite upset by this news because they see George um, they see the governor as somebody who's prepared to do everything he can to limit the damage or they wouldn't see it as damage but to limit um, Britain's options when they leave the EU. So I think this is jolly good news and it reassures me just a tiny bit that there is at least a grown up somewhere in the government uh, machine and it won't be the total disaster that it looks like it might well be. Uh, Robin is there a, a still more pessimistic analysis of this? If you look, look at Philip Hammond's statement which we played a clip of at the top of the show he was suggesting that uh, what was the quote uh, despite various personal pressures to conclude his term in June, uh, he, that is to say Mark Carney, will continue. Uh, should we be worried that it's apparently such a shambles that Mark Carney doesn't feel like he can, in all honesty and decency, actually go? I think he has a sense that uh, his, his job requires him to see it through. Um, there is no overriding reason, apart from family pressure, as I understand it, for him to go back to Canada, which is his normal place of residence uh, before all this is concluded. I think it is good news, frankly. I mean, as Ivor says, it, it, it's an indication that somebody with a, a grasp of what's going on remains uh, in, in an important role. It's also quite interesting in terms of where power lies within Theresa May's government. This is something very much that Philip Hammond, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, wanted. Um, he is regarded with absolute fury by a lot of the more extreme pro-Brexit colleagues uh, in, in the cabinet because he has lost no time and no opportunity in pointing out the risks that Brexit involve. And what he's trying to do, it seems to me, is minimise the impact of those risks by asking Mark Carney to stay on and 
probably for the good of the nation, uh, Mr Carney has said, OK, I'll stay. Uh, Ivor, Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, has said that Carney staying will support, uh, as he put it, and I'm using his words, a smooth exit uh, from the EU. Can, can even Mark Carney manage that at this point, do we think? Thought crosses my mind that maybe Mark Carney could manage a Canada plus plus plus. <laughs> maybe that's um, why he's staying. Poor joke. Canada plus is seen as one of the options, and Mr. Carney is a Canadian. Um, I personally, um, somebody, I was having a discussion yesterday about how awful the BBC was, and there was me loyally defending it. Um, and people said it's not giving us the facts about leaving. And I said to this person, but there are no facts about the future. Um, which I thought was a very profound philosophical point. Um, you should never make predictions about the future, they say. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but um, so, you know, the truthful answer is who, who knows? Is there such a thing as a smooth Brexit? Personally, I don't think so. Um, but, you know, on, on many political predictions in the last 10 years, I've been wrong. We might have a smooth Brexit. It might be setting the nation free. We might sail into this great new global Britain world where everybody flocks to make trade deals with us and pigs might fly. Interesting, though, that the mood music, just over the last few days, actually, has changed quite significantly. I mean, Monsieur Barnier, the chief negotiator for the EU, is beginning to say, oh, I think a deal is still possible within the next couple of months. Um, th there seems to be a view in some EU capitals that uh, things aren't quite as bad as they seemed three months ago. I wouldn't rule a relatively smooth Brexit out altogether. I still think it's a hugely difficult thing to achieve, but the fact that Mr Carney is prepared to stay on probably makes it just slightly more likely that there will be a less rough Brexit, let's put it that way. Than but I think what Monsieur Barnier and some of the European capitals are talking about is the form, i.e. in theory there is time for an agreement. It's the content that will be the problem for Mrs May because they envisage the, what's the so-called checkers a proposal as a starting point she regards it as this is the finished product and any pushback on the checkers agreement or the checkers proposals will call her cause her enormous difficulty and she might well find herself in a position where she cannot sign the agreement so although monsieur barnier i'm sure is right um, there is time it's not what is said it's what's in the project and do you I not agree though that both the eu and the uk want to avoid a cataclysmic uh, falling off a cliff deal, no deal. And so if that is the political impetus on both sides of the negotiating table, then, you know, these aren't stupid people. There is a way of doing it. Uh, <laughs> no, it's let very me controversial, isn't let, it? Let me take that back. I'm not uh, sure that is an incontrovertible truth. I mean, uh, just, just uh, Robin, just to return to, to Mark Carney, and, and again, thinking back uh, to the, the hours and days immediately following the Brexit vote, I remember being struck at the time that obviously there was a great deal of bewilderment and bafflement and, and anger, especially at uh, the people who'd bought this thing about just you know, all kind of en masse resigning saying I'm taking no responsibility for this it did strike me that morning watching the sort of various statements come in that the, the two people uh, who I thought acquitted themselves honourably basically by just giving the impression they'd given this possibility any previous thought were Nicola Sturgeon, uh, the, the First Minister of Scotland, and Mark Carney, who did appear, sort of said, okay, this is what's happening, these are the facts, this is what we're doing. Um, is Carney's job, I guess like any job in, in public life, but in his in particular, is it a job in which demeanour matters, as well as actual competence, the ability to project uh, competence? Very much so, I think. I mean, the fact, as you say, that he stood up that morning 
after the referendum and said, uh, we know what we're doing, uh, we did make plans for this. And that was a very important thing for him to have said because David Cameron, as Prime Minister at that time, had forbade the civil service for making contingency plans. The Bank of England, which was outside his remit, thank goodness, had made contingency plans. Mark Carney stood up and said, we have these plans in place, we, 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 we know what we are going to do, we will do whatever is required to prevent an economic meltdown. And indeed, they did do that. And uh, we owe him a lot of uh, a lot of gratitude for that. Indeed. So we are going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Robin Lustig and Ivor Gaber. Coming up next, the silliest diplomatic dispute in human history approaches a potential resolution. How do you unpack stories in the most engaging way while building a credible and comprehensive brand? Monocle Films visits three media companies in Paris, Munich and Tel Aviv to find out about the most innovative designs for paper and screen. It's good when you have lots of eyes or lots of thoughts on the same uh, topic and then at the end you can distill something new out of it. Uh, I've always been uh, interested in ideas from outside. This is uh, important for me. Designing the News, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Ivor Gaber and Robin Lustig. In Greece, where people have, of course, absolutely nothing else to worry about, there have been renewed protests slash riots over the question of what the country immediately to Greece's north chooses to call itself. The issue of Macedonia's name has been a thing for reasons surpassing understanding since the collapse of Yugoslavia turned Macedonia into a sovereign nation. Greece objects that there's a bit of Greece already called that. The issue has thwarted Macedonia's hopes of joining the EU and NATO and forced it to labour beneath the unwieldy acronym FIROM for former Yugoslav Republic of etc., although absolutely nobody ever calls it by that except when they're trying not to upset the Greeks. Um, Ivor, there is apparently an end in sight. There's going to be a referendum in Macedonia on September 30th uh, on an agreement which has been reached under which, if it is passed by Macedonia's people in Parliament, we'll see Macedonia rebrand as North Macedonia. Is that going to fix everything? No, and I'm not entirely sure it will be passed because a significant part of the Macedonian, should I say, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia population... The Firemese. Uh, you, you said that, not me. Um, <laughs> who actually object to this bully boy at the, to their south telling them to rename their country and only give it a sort of partial name of Northern Macedonia, like East Timor. Has anybody ever heard of West Timor? Um, well, and it's part of Indonesia. It I is know part of Indonesia. But nobody talks about it. And similarly, um, I, I, I think that, and of course there is a significant population, not least those living in the, what would it be, region, state of Macedonia in Greece, who similarly object. So... I wish I could share your optimism. I think this one's going to run and run. I think oh, you're going to be out, talking about it for the next 30 no, years. I, I, I know that to me, see, that is the optimistic assessment because I, I am a huge fan of inane <laughs> diplomatic disputes that just get protracted for decades and decades and decades for reasons that absolutely nobody understands or is able to explain. Um, Robin, in the pantheon of such things, where do you think this rates? Or do, do you have deeply held beliefs on this subject? I don't have deeply held beliefs, um, but I have a degree of understanding of the people who live either in 
North Macedonia, Stroke, Phyrom, or in Greece. Uh, the Balkans are a very special part of Europe and of That's the world. That's tactfully um, put, Robin. Well, I've spent a bit of time in the Balkans, and as I say, I have some sympathy. Um, it's a region which has known wars uh, since time immemorial. Borders have come and gone. Invasions and occupations have come and gone. People need to hold on to something, and what they hold on to is their identity. We live in an age of identity politics in which names mean something, in which people care what they're called, which people care who they're governed by and what their country is called. I don't, I don't think they're right to, to take it as, as far as they've taken it, but it's not for me to say. I, I hope very much that Ivor is wrong. I was hugely relieved when the governments of Greece and the country immediately to its north uh, agreed on a formula which they were both prepared to Was, was that a new euphemism for Macedonia? Yeah, I was, I was, try, I was trying not to say. In, 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 instead of being called Macedonia, it's going to have to be called the country immediately to Greece's north. Now, that it's, might yeah, not What's, that, that, might what, do it. what's the acronym going to be, uh, though? That's going to be TCITGN. Yeah, uh, let's not go yeah, there. So it's but, going to be called Tikadun. Just a career in diplomacy. Just to drag this discussion back to something serious, there are the Balkans, which have been bubbling under and bubbling over for 30 years is now going through a very odd time. There was, in your, as you said, some hope of, of a re- resolution of the mass of the dispute down there. <laughs> At the same time, and there was also there was also hope of some settlement between, between Kosovo and Serbia where they were tentatively agreeing a land swap. Although, no, well, what, what could possibly go wrong? Well, I'll, um, I'll tell you what's also going wrong is Bo- Bosnia is blowing up. Oh, I shouldn't use that term. Bosnia is becoming problematic again. For example, only in the last day or two, um, the Prime Minister of Kosovo has decided not to travel to the Serb enclave um, in Bosnia for a conference because the leader of that half-state, uh, the Serb enclave, said, you will not be welcome here, I cannot guarantee your safety. You are in danger of losing every listener at this point. I mean, this is, <laughs> this, this, this is, this is one of the problems with Balkan disputes. They are immensely complex and they are totally incomprehensible to anybody who lives outside the region. It doesn't mean that they don't matter to the people who live there. Well, to, to return to this particular dispute, how angry are the pair of view about the the ongoing impudent existence of a place called new england (laughs) it's taken a while to get used to the idea but i am because there is just this whole bunch of americans who without so much as a buy your leave insist they live in a place called new england they've even even got a football team personally i I still think of them as the rebels but you know (laughs) well there's uh, also a country further away which has a a worrying number of english names that it's claimed for its cities and towns oh you mean south wales no this is exactly my point as a native son of new south wales myself I am not aware that our state has ever received a single complaint from the the fine people of South Wales. But if you were right next to the fine people of South Wales, it might be different. The implication is they are old South Wales, and we know nobody wants to be old South Wales. You You raise a slightly serious point, but I think what we're all missing is the ethnic dimension. There is a very strong ethnic quasi religious dimension to the disputes in the Balkans. And the, my, my only perspective on it is what a brilliant politician Tito was to hold this lot together for 30 <laughs> years. Um, is, is there, just a final thought on this, Robin, is, is there a, seriously, though, a, a reputational aspect for Greece here? Because this this does tend to make Greece appear somewhat, I don't know, petty, we could say? 
Well, the, the the Greek government, I think, would love to move on from this. I mean, as, as you suggested, they've got one or two other problems on their plate, um, and they would love to be regarded once again as a, a serious country and a serious member of the European Union. If they can get this done, and the government at least thinks it has got a, a formula it can live with, then they can move on. Uh, there are some Greeks in, in the Greek region of Macedonia, and there are some Macedonians in North Macedonia who don't like the deal. We will see whether their governments can persuade them otherwise. Okay. well, finally tonight to New York City, where it does appear that little has been learned about encouraging people who owe their notoriety principally to starring in dreadful television programmes to stand for public office. Cynthia Nixon, alumnus of Sex and the City, is challenging Governor Andrew Cuomo for the Democratic Party's gubernatorial nomination in a primary on Thursday, and I thank her at least for that opportunity to say gubernatorial on air. However, she may have extinguished what little hope polls gave her with a peculiar bagel order. New Yorkers have been aghast, it says here, at her request for a salmon, cream cheese and capers filling on a cinnamon raisin bun. Um, Robin, does this combination tempt you in the slightest? I was aghast. I was aghastly aghast. (laughs) It shatters every standard of gastronomic taste. Uh, However, whether it should uh, have an impact on how people vote, I am not so sure. I mean, I am a huge bagel lover. I'm a huge lover of bagel with smoked salmon and cream cheese, but not... Have you you tried it on a cinnamon and raisin bagel? I have not. I I actually very much like cinnamon and raisin bagels toasted with butter, but that is it. Um, The sweet and sour thing, uh, sweet and salty thing, which Cynthia Nixon says is what she was going for, fine. Everybody's entitled to their own tastes. Just don't ask me to bite into it. I have unequivocal condemnation there from from Robin. Uh, I think you're you're missing a trick. I think this is a brilliant piece of spin. (laughs) I think she's, she's she's the underdog, though we have to be careful about calling people dogs these days but her advisor said what can we do to grab attention from the sitting gubernatorial candidate as I prefer to say that's a controversy for another yeah, day yeah, yeah. How we, do we, we could do a solid five minutes how on do we that grab though? attention and the debate um, and it's not dissimilar to the debate of a Labour candidate who once declared that um, battered Mars bars were the epicurean delight of Scotland um, and so I think this was a brilliant piece of PR. We're talking about Cynthia Nixon, and I have to say, no matter how wide-ranging these discussions on Midori House were, I doubt whether we would have mentioned her before. And there could just be a few votes in New York City who switch because they've heard us discussing this rather interesting woman. I, I'd be highly surprised, but there again, I should stop being surprised by anything at this point. Robin, this is a recurring theme of uh, modern elections, though. It's, it's the politician eating something weird or eating something in a weird way. There is a possible parallel universe in which right now Ed Miliband is Prime Minister of the United Kingdom were it not for an encounter with a bacon sandwich. It is weird, isn't it? And, and I mean, if, if one wanted to be depressed about politics, and of course none of us would ever want to be depressed about modern politics the uh, the role that completely unimportant inconsequential things have in uh, political decision making is, is something to do depressed about you're right about ed miliband and the bacon sandwich i'm not sure that he uh, failed to be elected prime minister on the basis of the bacon sandwich cynthia nixon is something like 40 points behind in the polls at the moment even if she's only 35 points behind when it comes to uh, she's election still day to she's lose. still going to lose on the other hand there have been cases uh, in the very recent american political party when younger women progressive candidates have upset the apple cart. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of course, in New York, Ayanna Presley in Boston. Who knows? It's not impossible. Bagels notwithstanding. (laughs) 
I mean, but why do why does this always work though, Ivor? Why do politicians always feel like they have to go along with the food eating thing? What would happen if a politician presented with the local delicacy of some particular wherever just said, "I don't like this. I don't want oh, it." Oh, oh come on, oh, and you oh. get real. No, no, couldn't, politi- couldn't, couldn't they just say, "I don't think other people are bad people for liking it. I don't think the people who produce it are bad people. I just do not enjoy this particular green." You hand it to your aid green, and say, "I'll eat it later." Green eggs and ham No, no, this is not the real world and I, I, I'm I, I'm going to say the magic word authenticity this is what politicians want to appear do you remember those wonderful pictures of, of tempted Clinton tempted to overrule you and say it should be pronounced authenticity but, but, <laughs> but, but carry continuing, on continuing um, 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 Clinton when he was a, a the democratic candidate for the first New Hampshire had himself by by coincidence, there was a TV crew available as he went into a donut shop at two in the morning in Manchester, New Hampshire, and chatted with the guy behind the counter. Brilliant stuff. So Cynthia Nixon might have got it slightly wrong, but, you know, there are fine precedents. And, yeah, politicians eat everything that comes your way. Uh, I mean, her bagel aberration, uh, Robin, has prompted some memories in the American press of Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York City, uh, in 2014, eating pizza with a knife and fork, uh, for which I actually think, I mean, he he shouldn't just be ridiculed but impeached. That's insane. Whoever has done that? No, Ivor is actually, no. let the record show, <laughs> listeners, that Ivor just put his hand up. Yeah, No politician should ever eat anything if there are cameras present. There is no way they can come out of it well because somebody is going to pick apart what they have done or how they have done it or with what utensils they have done it. Just don't eat with our cameras there. It's, it's Unless really... your candidate Clinton, who made sure the cameras were at his back, so they couldn't see him <laughs> munching. I mean, and nobody that's... looks good when they got their mouth full of food, for goodness sake. Well, on that note, we have reached the end of today's show. We're all going out for a salmon, cream cheese and cinnamon bagel. On pizza. Uh, on pizza. Uh, Ivor Gaber and Robin Lustig, thank you very much for joining us at Midori House. We could round it off with a bacon sandwich and a banana. Uh, today's show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Martha Libri. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. More music next at 1900. It's, it's Monocle on Design. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow with a special edition of the show live from our bureau in Zurich. For now, I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs>